I want to start this morning by just putting up this statement on the screen. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, we've all heard that before, but if you didn't know any better and you just picked up the book of Isaiah one day, it's a thick book, right? And you read that statement, you'd probably think that's a pretty innocuous statement. You might even be tempted to read right past it. It doesn't seem all that important. But what if I told you that in that one sentence, you will find all the mysteries of this life and the life to come and the essential foundation of the Christian faith? In that statement on the screen. Fast forward more than 700 years, Luke, the gospel writer and historian, reports this. He says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to who? Her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So we have a a moment in time prophesied long ago, then fulfilled at least in part centuries later, and filled with every paradox that your mind can possibly conceive of. And maybe you've thought about this before. Here we have the, 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 the single greatest turning point in human history, and only a handful of people actually saw it. Think about that. And the witnesses themselves were shepherds, not noblemen, not priests, not religious leaders, just a bunch of ordinary guys working the night shift. An eternal being broke into time. The creator of the universe came to his own creation in the form of a human baby. The king who possesses all things was born to poor parents in the middle of nowhere and then was placed in a a structure that was made to feed animals. The king. He of infinite glory and majesty became helpless, dependent, and small. Omnipotent God placed his own care and welfare into the hands of sinful creatures. I could go on and on. This story, it it is so hard to just wrap your mind around all the unfathomable details of that night in Bethlehem. But I think it's important for us to ponder these things as we approach Christmas. That in the first advent of this prophesied son, he didn't come to us by way of a fairy tale birth in a golden palace with all of the privileges of luxury. He came into the very real, very gritty world of first century Judea with all of its darkness and all of its brokenness. Note this as well. Every detail of that unique moment was sovereignly planned and prophesied and orchestrated by God within time. The specific timing in human history, the fullness of the times. The mysterious process behind how a virgin becomes pregnant. The region that Joseph and Mary come out of. That little village where Mary will give birth. 
God even moved in the mind of the most powerful man on the planet at that time, Caesar Augustus, to call for a census of his empire and to require all of his subjects to have to go back to their hometown to register. I find this such a a fascinating part of the Christmas story to see how the movements and actions of powerful people are guided by the Lord even when they don't even realize it. They don't even acknowledge it or realize it, but he is doing it not for their sake, but for the sake of his ordinary saints, people like Joseph and Mary. In the Christmas story, God literally wields an empire to bless those whom he will use as tools in his hands to establish his kingdom and to save sinners. Think about that. Now, with that in mind, you might say, well, I have an objection, Jeff. If God so rules the world, couldn't he have seen fit to have just one room available at the inn? In Bethlehem? I mean, come on, that's not that hard, right? Yes, he could have. And yes, Jesus could have been born in Jerusalem. He could have been born to to a family of priests or or a wealthy family. There's lots of things God could have done. But the point is, what's recorded for us in Isaiah 9 and Luke chapter 2, that is what God willed to do. And he willed to do that for your benefit and for mine. Though Christ was rich in every way, for our sake, he became what? He became poor. That's the Christmas story. Now, grab your Bibles. If you haven't opened yet, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at half a verse today. (laughs) Now, over the past two Sundays, we have worked our way from verse 1 all the way through verse 5 of this very important chapter. We're calling this our Old Testament Christmas, right? Just seven verses in five weeks of Advent. And we saw, first of all, in verse 1, where God promised at some point in the future. Now, remember, Isaiah's writing in the 8th century B.C. But he promises through his prophet that at some point in the future, he will send a glorious light to this formerly contempt part of Israel, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, to Galilee of the Gentiles. And, of course, those become the very places where Jesus is raised as a child, where he grows up, and then also the place where he establishes his center of ministry activity. Then in verses 2 through 5, we listened as God promised to change the very course of human history for the sake of his people Israel. And he promised to transform them in a whole series of miraculous ways, to give light and life to those who once walked in the shadow of death, who walked in darkness. He will bring light and life, he says. To someday multiply and increase the size of the nation, to shatter the burdens of oppression and the bars that lay across the shoulders of Israel, put there by Gentile invaders and oppressors, and to finally bring them peace to bring an absence of war, to give them the unspeakable joy and freedom of that. And then last Sunday, we talked about how for the Jewish people, those things have not happened in the past in human history. They just haven't happened. And so as you meditate upon the history and you look at the wording here in Isaiah 9, you you can't help but conclude that this still remains to be fulfilled, that there is coming a time in the future, a messianic age, where the Davidic king will reign over his people Israel from Zion. And trust me, that will come back up when we get to verse 7. And we'll talk more about that. Now, the key question as we take the next step in our study, how does God plan to fulfill those promises? They're pretty great promises. How is he going to fulfill them? The answer is right here in verse 6. 
a child will be born to us. That's how. That is God's plan to fulfill those promises. So let's read these verses again, beginning in verse one. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And now beginning in verse three, Isaiah refers to a a singular person who is going to do these extraordinary things. He says, you, speaking to this person, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Why? For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. So catch this. In this world of darkness and despair and war, God says a light will dawn, hope will rise, peace will come. How? Through a child. How is that possible, right? That, that'd be the question. If I didn't just read past this verse, I'd go, oh, hold on, time out. Through a child? How is that possible? Well, you have to conclude this must be a pretty special child. Isn't that true? Now, I'd love to keep going in this verse because obviously what we read next tells us, indeed, this child is going to be one of a kind. He'll be very special. Isaiah is going to tell us that someday the government of the entire earth will rest on his broad shoulders. And in that day, the inhabitants of the earth will call him by these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So yeah, that makes him pretty special. But we're saving those details to next week. That's just a tease. Got to come back. For today, I simply want to look at the two key phrases in that one sentence in the first half of verse 6. A child born, a son given. Now, at first glance, you may look at that and go, okay, Jeff, just recently in the Psalm series, you taught us about Hebrew parallelism. And you said sometimes in Hebrew poetry, the poet will write the same thing in two different ways to communicate that truth. So maybe this is Hebrew parallelism. Well, if we were in the Psalms, I would probably agree with you, but we're not. We're in the prophets. In in Isaiah, I think it's best to understand that God is communicating two interconnected ideas here, but still distinct in what they actually mean. And I think we can recognize the hand of the Holy Spirit in the very specific wording. You have child versus son, but more importantly, you have born versus given. And we'll unpack that as we go along. Theologically, those two things align with the two natures of Christ. In his humanity, he was a child born to us. In his deity, he is a son given to us. And the language really does matter here. So let's break that down and let's try to explain what Isaiah was prophesying about, again, way back in the 8th century BC. And I want to start by reversing the order of that phrase in verse 6. I want to talk, first of all, about the son who is given to us. Now, why do I do that? 
Uh, you, if you've taken any systematic theology classes, you probably know this already, but we always want, when we do Christology, when we talk about the study of the doctrine of Christ, we always want to start from above, not from below. We start with what we know about God from eternity past, that he is divine, that he is deity, that he is God. And then we work our way down to where he comes to the earth. We don't start down here on the earth and then try to explain why he's God. We do the other way because chronologically, his eternality precedes coming to earth. And so what we're talking about here, you've probably heard this word before, we're talking about incarnation, which is a Latin word in origin that just simply means to be made in the flesh. Its Greek equivalent comes right out of the New Testament. We see it in John 1.14, right? The gospel says what? Kai halagos sarx egeneto. And the word became flesh. Incarnation. And of all the miracles that are given to us in scripture, I cannot think of one that is more stunning and more thought-provoking than the idea that God the Son would willingly step out of heaven and out of the immediate presence of the Father to come to this fallen place and to take upon himself a human body and a human nature. The incarnation has been called the height of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. Not one of us in this room would ever come up with this plan, nor would we execute it. Eternity, again, the paradoxes, right? Eternity steps into time. Immensity experiences finite space. Immutability enters into a world of change. Omnipotence becomes weak. Eternal blessedness walks into temporal sorrow. Again, we could go on and on. And honestly, the incarnation is a mystery that we will never fully comprehend this side of heaven. All we want to do as believers down here on the earth is acknowledge it gratefully, thankfully, and believe. Amen? We're not alone in this, by the way. The Apostle Paul seems to indicate that he too is mystified by the fact that Jesus would do this. It's not the most famous verse, but 1 Timothy 3.16 is a very interesting verse. And Greek scholars have looked at this. They believe it's a, it's a creed of the early church. It was probably something that was recited in early first century worship services. But look what it says. By common confession, Paul writes... Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery. He who was revealed in the flesh, revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The verb that Paul uses there in this verse is key. He says Jesus was revealed, revealed in the flesh. And then if you add another very famous passage from Galatians 4.4, another verb where Paul writes that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So look at this truth. You see that the son is given according to Isaiah, and according to Paul, he is revealed in the flesh and also sent forth from God. Now, that is not the same thing as being born. None of us uses that language when we have a baby. That is not being born as we understand that particular language. God the Son's arrival is different. He is given to us. He is revealed to us. He is sent forth from the Father. So all of those phrases point to the fact that Jesus 
is preexistent, that he is eternal in nature. They tell us that he was with the Father, and then when the fullness of the times came, the Father sent him into the world. And doesn't John say that very, that very thing in John chapter 1 in the beginning? Right? That means before anything was made, in the beginning, what? Was the Word. He existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was Theos. He was God. Same concept, right? And then 13 verses later is when John follows up, connecting the word. He says, and the word became flesh. So the word can't be anything but Jesus because he connects it in verse 14 and says that word that was in the beginning then became flesh in the fullness of the times. And he dwelt among us. And John says, we saw his glory. We beheld it. Paul says it another way in Philippians 2. He says, he says, Jesus existed in the form of God in Philippians 2.6. And that was before he took on a different form, which was what? The form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. So he existed in the form of God in eternity past, and then he took on the form of a servant in time. Even Jesus talked about this in his own way. In John 6, he literally says, I have come down from heaven. So we have all this different language which tells us this is different than just being born. And there's another fascinating aspect to this which we find in Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews talks about how we need a greater sacrifice than the blood of, of animals if our sin is going to be propitiated. This is Hebrews 10 verses four and five. It says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he... Jesus comes into the world, same language. When he comes into the world, he says, that is, Jesus says to the Father, sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Hmm. So God the Father ordained that a physical human body be prepared for the Son, a unique body that was, for, that was fit specifically for the mission that God the Father was sending him on. After all, Jesus needed a body, didn't he? If he's going to offer up a sacrifice to propitiate sin, he needs a body to offer up in sacrifice. He needs a body to be resurrected in order to be the prototype of the resurrection that we someday will enjoy. So the Father commissioned the body of the Son. But then, just so that you understand that all members, all persons of the triune Godhead are involved in this miracle... After that commissioning, it's the Holy Spirit then who steps into the spotlight in the actual formation of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary. That's what Mary's told in Luke chapter one. God sends his messenger angel Gabriel to Mary to announce the big news. I mean, have you thought about what, what that must have been like? We, we read right past that part of the story. Really? How shocking for Mary, right? And I love how she... Mary is so practical. She's like, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Man, what a great question. And the angel answers and says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now that is mysterious language, isn't it? How many of you guys would like to know more details? We're not given it because I don't think we can possibly even fathom the mechanics behind how God works in this way. So we're given this type of language, right? 
And for that reason, because of the unique work of the Spirit within Mary, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And so Mary's womb becomes the chamber wherein the Spirit miraculously knits together deity with humanity. Again, what are the mechanics behind that, right? Two natures in one person. Theanthropos, the God-man. Wow. Jesus never becomes less God. He just adds a human nature to his already divine nature. And so he becomes one person with two natures that remain distinct. They're in one person, but they remain distinct without division or separation, without change or confusion. And I know that's, that's wild, isn't it? Paul says in Colossians 2.9 then, and this is amazing, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Another paradox. Wait, deity <laughs> dwelling in bodily form? Yes. Paul says it very clearly. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that this child is going to grow up and he is going to retain all of his divine attributes, yet give up the voluntary use of those attributes and rely solely upon the, the father to instruct him when to use those attributes and when not to. So he retains the attributes but gives up the voluntary use of them so that he might do only what the father tells him. And as a divine person, he then takes on this human body and he takes on this additional nature in order to experience life like yours. To experience a human life. Have you, have you even thought about the love and the sacrifice that he shows just in that simple fact that he wanted to walk in your shoes and feel what you feel? And he took on this body and this nature to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father, which he will then offer up to him as a substitute for us on the cross. This is wild, is it not? What a mystery. Listen, I know a lot of you guys, you've been around the church all your lives. Don't just brush past this stuff at Christmas time. This is amazing stuff. This is what love, right? As believers, we ought to strive to wrap our minds around these things and to let them sink deeply into our hearts, to let them give us confidence that we serve and worship an awesome, sovereign God. And if we ever get wobbly about these things, because sometimes that happens, we get wobbly, we're like, I've meditated on it and it's so wild that I'm starting to doubt. Where do we come back to? Where do we come back to? We say to the Lord, I may not understand all the details. I know you haven't given me all the mechanics, but this I know, with God all things are possible. And we don't ask that he conform his ways to our rational minds. It doesn't work that way. With God all things are possible. So in, in, a, in sort of a dimly lit way, this is what Isaiah is looking forward to when he writes these simple words, a son will be given to us. Don't you, aren't you grateful that we live in the new covenant era and we get to see that more fully realized? There's still more to come, by the way. That'll come in the next couple Sundays. But man, we have such an advantage compared to our Old Testament friends. Okay, so let's look at the other phrase now. A child will be born to us. So this is a great statement of the full humanity of the one whom God the Father sends to the earth. 
And we can speak of him being born because unlike his divine nature, this is important, Jesus' human nature had an actual time-bound starting point. Okay, that's important. One is eternal. One has a time-bound starting point, being added to his person at the time of his conception. And then Jesus enters into a time, a period that we call his humiliation, the humiliation of Christ. Now, in our lexicon today, we think of the word humiliation, and it's it's sort of a, a pejorative. We think in terms of things like disgrace and shame, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the humiliation of Christ. When we talk about that, it's associated with this key verse in Philippians 2 that we all know so well. This is, this is the, the core of his humiliation. Although he existed in the form of God already, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to, be, to cling on to as if he might lose it. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, when God's, God the Son emptied himself, again, it does not mean that he laid aside his divine attributes. Again, it means that he didn't cling on to the throne in heaven. Instead, he willingly stepped down, this is the key phrase, and made himself nothing. The king of the universe made himself of no reputation. That's the humiliation. That's the humility that he took on upon himself. He laid aside his position, his reputation, and all the privileges that go with being God the Son. And the king of the universe who deserves to be served in every way took on the posture of serving all of mankind. It, 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 it's beyond fathoming, isn't it? But paradoxically, it was that earthly humiliation of Christ that became the ultimate example of his obedience to the Father. And for that reason, what? God highly exalted him. Right? And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And that's our model even today, isn't it? Right? Right? Paul says in this Philippians 2 passage, have this attitude in yourselves that was present in Christ Jesus. He's the model. And then James confirms both the principle and the result when he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will do what? He will exalt you. Same principle. But imagine this now. God the Son starts out as a baby. Some of you guys have babies at home. You know exactly what we're talking about here. A baby making himself nothing. But there's clearly a purpose to it, right? Theoretically, God could have sent Jesus as an adult, right? Because with God, all things are possible. Adam wasn't made as a baby, right? But to fully identify with you and me, the creator of all things placed himself in a posture where he was dependent upon his own created beings to feed him, to clothe him, to burp him, and to change his diaper. Yes, when we declare that Jesus was fully human, all of that is included. I know we don't like to think about it, but it's all included. And John tells us that after coming to earth, God didn't step back away from humanity. John says he tabernacled 
among us. Right? He made his camp with his disciples, with human beings. He dwelt among us. He hung out with people. He came and he identified with ordinary human beings, with, with fishermen of all things, and even tax collectors. And here's what always amazes me. Knowing all things in eternity past, right? Knowing all things, God the Son resolved to dwell with mankind, knowing full well what awaited him once the Father sent him into the world. He knew what was coming, and he did it anyway. He knew that he would have no place to call his own. He knew that he would have no place to lay his head. He knew that he would go unrecognized by his own people, that he'd be rejected by his own, Ultimately, he knew that wicked men would condemn him to an agonizing death. Jesus knew that he would have to suffer through all the miseries of of this human life on the earth. He knew that he would experience every temptation that you and I experience, yet without sin. He knew that he would feel everything that we feel, hurt the way we hurt, cry the way we sometimes cry. And on the cross... He knew that he would have to feel the weight of human sin as he took all of ours upon himself. He knew all that. So this is why we talk about, when we talk about God is love, when we talk about Christ loving us in the incarnation, he did all of that knowing what was coming. So for good reasons, we, th- we think of the cross as the greatest manifestation of God's love for us, but we shouldn't forget at Christmas time that the incarnation is step one in that process and a great manifestation of his love. Now consider this. Under the old covenant, how was God accessible to human beings? Through priests and through prophets and via the tabernacle and later the temple. Whenever God's people would read about Yahweh and his emotions, they would read that, well, Yahweh is pleased by this or he's angry about that or grieved by this. When they would read about Yahweh's hands and and feet and eyes and ears, they knew that was an anthropomorphism, right? A, a literary tool used by the authors of scriptures. But maybe you've never thought about this. After that night in Bethlehem, all of those expressions became embodied. They all took on a form, an actual physical, tangible form. All the types and shadows of the Old Testament gave way to the flesh of God incarnate. And now guess what? People could see God in all those emo- having all those emotions, they could see the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears of, of God incarnate. That's amazing stuff. In Jesus, God becomes accessible in a form that we recognize, that's familiar to us. And it's so easy for us to forget what a blessing it is that God purposed to do that for us. I think that's why John writes over and over again. When you read John's gospel and his first epistle, You see him say this all the time. We saw him. (laughs) We saw him. We touched it. We we heard him. He's so excited about this because he gets it. We saw God in bodily form. Imagine. Imagine that. I sat around a campfire with God incarnate. We sang songs together. We prayed. I prayed with God in the flesh. Imagine the privilege We beheld his glory. Listen to his words in 1 John. It's it's worth looking at. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, 
and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And look at all the language there that connects back to John 1.1. The word from the beginning, right? All these different things. He's connecting it back. And then he goes on. He says, that life was revealed. Same word, right? Revealed. And we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you what? The eternal life. That is Jesus. That was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see how excited he is about the tangible aspects of God in the flesh? And then he makes an ontological equality here. He says, our fellowship is with both persons. If, if Jesus is anything less than God the Father, that's, that's blasphemy. It's an ontological connection he's making here to say we have fellowship with both persons. So if you want to know what God is like, and doesn't everybody say that? Oh, I wonder what God's like. Study the life of Jesus. How does he speak? What are his attitudes? What words does he choose? What actions does he take? How does he react to things? Look carefully at all of it because he himself said, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you believe that? If so, you'll study the life of Christ and you'll know all of those things. What a blessing that you and I have these Bibles in our hands. We're not like the Old Testament saints. We have these Bibles that tell us exactly what God is like. Maybe we never take that for granted, especially at a time like Christmas when we celebrate the incarnation. Now, before we wrap up, just one caution about the study of the humanity of Christ. One of the harmful trends in the last 30 years that I've seen as a pastor has, has Christians in this part of the world becoming, I would say, too familiar with Jesus as a man. Okay, Failing to balance his deity with his humanity. And, and the reality is we all love to bring everything down to our level, right? And, and if we're not careful, we can end up looking at Jesus as too much like us. But can I remind you who he is? I, again, it's wonderful to celebrate the fact that he came in the flesh. But let's remember, when he was born into this world, he was robed by that flesh. His divine attributes were veiled to the world, and thankfully so, because if God, if God were to disrobe and show us all of his glory and power, we would be reduced to ash. That's, that's, that's who Jesus is. Be thankful he was robed. No man can see me and live. Remember, God said that to Moses. And yet John's testimony is clear. Not only did we survive <laughs> seeing Jesus, we really enjoyed being with him. We did all these things. We camped together. It's amazing to me. Martin Luther talked about this in his day. And he used a funny phrase. He talked about the naked God. Now, that may sound strange, right? But he said, look, the naked God is a consuming fire. Don't forget that. And so the only way to approach that type of a God to find salvation is to go to the clothed God, who is Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. That's your only way to approach God is with the one who is robed and veiled in flesh. Otherwise, we'd be consumed. So let us not forget who he is as we celebrate the incarnation. And let's not lose sight of how gracious God was in taking that form for our safety. 
and for our understanding and, of course, for our salvation. And can I just tell you my favorite part? If you really want to focus on something really amazing at Christmas time, my favorite part of the whole, the whole Jesus in flesh story is it's the fact that he still, still maintains his human nature. He still maintains a physical body, even though it's glorified, right? He is still right now fully God and fully man and will be forever. And what does that mean? Because he's been embodied that means that when you and I arrive in heaven, we'll actually see him. Remember, God is spirit. Without that body, we, we, how would we see? We're going to his, see his face. You've all thought about it in your mind. What does he look like? We're going to see his face. I, we're going to hear his voice. Oh, man, it gives me chill. Every time you've read the red letters, right, and you've heard his voice, you've, you've, in, your, in your mind's eye or your ears, whatever, you've thought, what did he sound like? Well, no. And I, I can't prove this, but because he's physical, I think we get to hug him for all eternity. Somebody fact check me on that. But that's the way I like to see it, that we're going to be able to touch and hug our Savior for all eternity. That is amazing stuff. Now, Next week, we're going to tackle the rest of verse 6, and we'll look at this government that Jesus upholds, and we'll talk about those four names for today. Let me just let me come back to this, this concept that I started with at the very outset. question is, worshipers, do you, ever, do you ever feel like Mary and Joseph, that you're just, air quotes, ordinary saints? Um, I read this really sweet blog article this week written by a pastor uh, struck a chord in my heart, and I, I'm just going to share a few lines from it because I really loved it. Here's what he wrote. See if, you, see if you identify with this. He says, I sometimes wonder if my life is so small and so slow and so ordinary that it's inconsequential. My family is wonderful but regular. <laughs> I lead a church plant that lacks in style but makes up for it in substance. We live in a flyover state in the Midwest. If my life were a TV show, an audience wouldn't get past the pilot. I'm tempted to think, should I be in a more exciting place? Wouldn't God be more glorified by a more extraordinary church? But in the middle of my insecurities, the season of Advent speaks into my fears. Each Advent, I become especially aware of the paradox of Christmas and the arrival of our hope in Christ. And in that paradox, I'm discovering that perhaps this ordinary life, perhaps this regular family, and perhaps this simple church are the exact types of places that God likes to appear. Anybody else encouraged by that? When I stand back and I consider all the details of this Christmas story, I, I'm blown away with both sides of it. First of all, the humility and the simplicity of the story, but then also all of these unfathomable details and complexity that God has built into it. But it's true, isn't it? If God can work in such unexpected ways and use such ordinary saints, can't he do extraordinary things through people like us? And through churches like ours, regular churches. He could save the most hard-hearted person that you know. True? He could bring healing to a broken marriage. Amen?
He could provide you with the resources and help that you need to overcome an addiction. He could help a family that's struggling with their parenting. He could open a door to a job out of nowhere that suddenly meets your financial needs. He could bring someone into your life that you've been praying for. He can reveal to you a whole new area of ministry where your spiritual gifts can be used. All of those things are possible. Friends, know this. If you belong to Christ, if you are a child of God, you are far more than ordinary to him. In fact, know know that he is sovereignly ruling the world for your good and for his glory. He does as he wills. He does as he pleases, oftentimes in unlikely, unseen, and humble places. In fact, we might even say that he prefers to operate that way. So believe in who he says he is, trust in what he's done to rescue you from your sin, and believe this promise that we just read in scripture today, a child has been born for you, and a son has been given for you. Glory to God in the highest, amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, week after week, we are just blown away by the story that you were writing, that you have been writing since the very beginning, and you have brought us to this time, Lord, and, and we, we enter into the text, and we, we see what you've done. We see your goodness and your faithfulness. We see your sovereignty and your power, and Lord, we admit that we don't always understand everything, and, and we can rest in that because we know that you're good, and we know that you love your children. And so we thank you for this story, Lord, that we can, we can continue to talk about and share about the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the necessity of, of putting our faith in all of that, Lord, if we're going to be saved. And God, we thank you for this ordinary church. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are wonderful, faithful, regular Christians who love you and wish to serve you and wish to love one another. We know that you are building something wonderful here at Oak Hill, and we're just grateful that you've called us to this mission. So thank you again for the Christmas story. We'll continue to process it over the next couple of weeks. Lord, guide us and lead us into more and more truth, again, for our good and your glory, we pray. Amen.